Life is complex. So is our mental health. It cannot be understood by diagnosis alone. Our philosophy is treat the person, not the mental illness. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Humanizing Mental Health. I'm Jeremy Alcorn. And I'm Trent Nakers. Uh, Today, we're going to be exploring the humans behind the mic. We're going to do this in a a two-part um, episode with our, our first part. Um, we're going to explore um, my co-host Trenton Akers, his life experience and what has uh, kind of molded and, and shaped him to be the person he is today. Oh. Well, thank you, Jeremy. Um, yeah. Well, hello, everybody. I know this is probably, uh, as you're listening to this, if you're listening to this in order, this will be our second episode. And uh, so for, for those of you that have joined in, I just want to say hello. Um, my name, of course, is Trenton, or I usually go by Trent Akers. And yeah, um, well, let me start off with a little bit of biographical information about myself. I was born in the year 1987. For those uh, music fans, which I am, uh, that was the year that the YouTube album Rattle and Hum came out. And I can see Jeremy's perplexed look as he's looking at me. Uh, oh, I was thinking you were going to say Guns N' Roses' Appetite for Destruction. <laughs> no, no. Was that 87, though? I'm not even sure. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, I, th- I th- think you're probably right. No, I, I don't mind a little uh, Guns N' Roses or a little Axl Rose. But no, actually, um, no, I'm a big U2 fan. Well, there, there's a little bit And for a second, I thought you said YouTube. And I was like, wait a minute. There was no YouTube in 1987. <laughs> well, you, well, I, I don't know. Like, well, I, I think if, if we're going back to that, I, I think you could have had YouTube, but I think it would have just been camcorder. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah. So just to give a little, well, that puts me at 34 years old. And um, yeah, I'm a lifelong resident of Medicine in Alberta. Um, for those of you that uh, know anything about Canada, I mean, you know, Alberta is sort of the prairie provinces, as one person has kind of described um, southern Alberta, which Medicine is in. It's sort of like the, the Texas of Canada, which, uh, you know, can be good and bad things, depending upon what the way you look at it. We're a big oil field community, um, and we can also be a little bit conservative, which has some good things and has, you know, some other things that... People may or may not go for, but I don't know. I've loved medicine. It's a great place to grow up. I have um, my father uh, was an electrician for 40 years. My mother was a nurse. I have um, one older brother than me, my brother Sheldon. He's actually 18 months older than me. And one of the things, I mean, if you're literally sitting here looking at me, that's actually rather apparent. But for those of you that are just listening to me, one of the main things that has formed a lot of who I am um, is I have a disability known as cerebral palsy. Now, what that is, is that's kind of a blanket condition. And basically what it is, is it's a movement disorder. And I do a lot of talks with kids and I explain what cerebral palsy is kind of like a puppet. I don't know if if anybody um, has watched Pinocchio lately, you know, like you Think of Pinocchio with his strings. Some strings are with me, with my cerebral palsy. Some strings are tight, some strings are loose, and some strings are somewhere in the middle. Now, because of that, um, I use an electric wheelchair to get around. And uh, as you'll notice, sometimes, so probably some of our episodes, I tend to get a little bit short of breath. That's because when I was initially born, I was actually born about 28 weeks 
premature. Now, for those of you that may be medical professionals, um, that's pretty much the cutoff for when um, a lot of people can actually be viable first out of the womb. Anything um, before that, your chances of survival uh, outside of the womb actually uh, decrease quite dramatically. And for me in particular, my lungs were underdeveloped. And because I had underdeveloped lungs, I um, had something happen to me, which is called a hypoxic event. Now, that's a scientific term, normally not a mental health term that we talk about on this show. Um, A hypoxic event basically means a, um, a specific large loss of oxygen. So basically, when I was born, I didn't breathe. So because of that, um, a lot of the key neurons are parts of the brain that control muscle movement um, and muscle smoothness. Those were irreparably damaged. Now, basically what that means is that I can still control move my body. It's just not as smooth as the average ambulatory person. And it's almost quite similar to having a stroke. Now, uh, because of that, that... Because I was born so premature, my life. Oh, sorry. And, and yeah, just a, a, a quick uh, question. So, so you're, you're talking about in that gestation period that um, you were 28 weeks in gestation mm-hmm. when you were born. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which, which of, of course mo- most people consider that that internal gestation to be 40 weeks is that kind of um, typical gestation. So that's really significant yeah yeah and um yeah and you know and and as you and i were like just watching something just right before the show here wow where it talked about trauma i mean and -hmm. i've talked about with my family and specifically with my mother like we were talking about the trauma of birth and really how my birth for her was traumatic and how that shaped our relationship. Sure, sure. Yeah. Because it becomes a reciprocal thing. That, oh. that, that is to say, the, the distress that she experiences then is felt within the context of this mother-child interaction. Oh. And it, right, and it's, it's not like that's somebody's fault. I mean, that would be very, very normal for a mom to be distressed in that mm-hmm. situation. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, right there, I mean, because of my birth and the traumatic nature of that birth, that disruption happened. And then, of course, you had the medical apparatus that just kind of came up around me and like really, really separated her and I on that most fundamental level because she talks about going into the ICU at those moments when you go in and you visit a baby. And I mean, it's right behind glass and mm-hmm. she said like you're surrounded by all of these traumatized parents she said you go straight to your child you know you don't look at anybody else and you kind of try to have those moments of connection and i mean if any of you uh because i was so premature i actually ended up spending quite a bit of time in an incubator yeah in fact i can link up with your experience one of my my nieces mm-hmm. was uh was also born very premature um, uh, like about 16 weeks early and, and her dad's wedding ring would fit all the way up her hand, all the way to her shoulder. And, yeah. and so that position around what does this, this look like and what are the in, intense pressures that happen for the family at that time? Oh yeah, yeah. no, absolutely. I mean, mm-hmm. um, I'm, trying, I'm, I'm looking around our, um, 
or my living room uh, where we normally record. Um, and, you know, I actually have my baby book around here, but if you actually, I'm, I'm trying to think where it is. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm like thinking that you're just a regular audience that I talk to, but I don't know, maybe we'll throw up some pictures online, you know, or not. Well, we'll see what happens. Sure, but, 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 there, but there's something I imagine. Like my, my niece, they had this little stuffed animal that they put in there mm-hmm. as, a, as a, something of perspective. And and now you see the stuffed animal and you go, oh, no way yeah. that she was that little. I imagine you, had, you have some things that are similar to that. Oh yeah, actually, you know, and this this will be a good visual for people. So when my grandma, when she was alive, um, when she actually knit a cap for me, I don't know if any of you um, out there eat Christmas oranges. Like, do you, you know how small a Christmas orange is? So that was about the approximate size of my head. Mm-hmm. And so if any of you are actually looking at your um, at your wrist, if you actually just want to pull out your hand right now, so my hand, my head would fit in the palm of your hand and about halfway down your forearm so um yeah like just a little bit below where your elbow would be or a little bit above i should say uh about halfway that is um approximately how long i was Mm -hmm. so that was my approximate size Mm -hmm. and i was so premature to the point that literally when uh, all of your body parts are coming up together your your ears actually move from the low, from the uh, I believe it's the lower part of your jaw, and eventually, as you mature like, and gestate, they'll actually move up into place. My ears were actually low, like you know the old song, "Do, do your ears hang low?" Mm-hmm. My ears were literally hanging low because they hadn't moved up into place yet. Wow. And and you know I, I had no idea we had uh, this kind of shared experience. Obviously, for you, it was your own life. Mm-hmm. For, for me, it was uh, my my niece. Um, you talk about your your grandma making you clothes. I, I remember this. Here's this little baby, and there's there's no clothes that are made that small. And so so my my mom, who would have been the grandma, you know, yeah. then used doll clothes as a as a like a, a pattern to create mm-hmm. these clothes for this this baby. So. It's just interesting these these ways in which your life connects. But. Yeah, yeah, no, and, yeah, and, yeah, like, and that. Well, and there again too. I mean, like when you talk about doll clothes, I mean, there again, you know, a, a doll for a child, so everything get, get gets really shrunk down. And the fact that you almost wonder to yourself too, how many of us actually have shared experiences, and how if we take the time to get to know each other, how we can really create sort of that understanding, which of course then too is sort of the ethos of this podcast, which is really right. humanizing mental health, finding yes. those shared experiences. Mm-hmm. Because we will find wellness and we'll do it together. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and I mean, as you go on and as you probably listen to more of our episodes, I think that's going to be one of the main themes is, you know, coming together and of course finding that connection, but really healing through community and that's I mean I I think that you know you and I've talked about this before but that's really how healing really comes together and like what we want to do with this podcast is to create that community even if it's just over voice yeah so you're in this in this space in which you talk about your very first foundations which your foundations are uh, a traumatic birth and oh. and this uh, what was the word you used? Was it an apnea event? Or? Hypoxic. Yeah, there you go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, and I mean, like my mo- actually last weekend, my mother and I were talking about this, and what it was because um, is what they would do is they would 
they, they had me on oxygen, and then they would take me off and try and let me breathe. So I'd be gasping for air, and then they have to put me back on again, take me off, put me back on, take me, you know. And so normally, like when a child comes into um, the world, like you think of like the first cry, the first breath, and then sort of that. And for those of you that know anything about the long nerve uh, that really connects um the, the longest nerve in the body that connects really the brain, the heart, and everything else, the vagus nerve, the one thing that it's really controlled by and really activated by is breath. Mm-hmm. I mean, for those of you that have ever gone into therapy or even done yoga, like what is the one thing that you do to calm yourself mm-hmm. down sure. is to breathe. And that was the one thing that I couldn't do. So I kind of came into the world, you know, not knowing how to calm myself down regulate yeah and 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 beyond that to be able to find survival and life because this is this foundation of need for oxygen for life Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. no absolutely you you came into life fighting and actually you never stopped (laughs) you know and uh yeah well i know and and I, I will agree, and you know the fact that you say that, because that well, my my pediatrician at the time, Doctor Fulston, um, Charlotte Fulston, who's a wonderful pediatrician, she's now retired, but she said to my mother, she says, "Yep, he's a fighter, he survived," and I mean, like, and that really that whole tone of fighting. Like whether it be, um, and as we talk on, I'm like, oh, it, it's taken so many different forms. So whether it was for me for the fight for breath, um, the fight to uh, from my parents when it comes to um, fight for services and the fight for to be recognized as actual um, competent parents. And I'll, I'll come back to that in a moment because I think that that would be the next uh, point to come to, and then sort of the fight for recognition by peers, whether they be children or whether they be then soon on um, key professionals in my field that that I'm now in as a clinical social worker. That that is, um, you know, that that's sort of been the undertone. Yeah. Um, in, in fact, one of the things that really stands out to me as you talk about that story is the the fight hasn't been in some way to win against someone it hasn't hasn't been somehow to beat someone else or to compete with someone else and have a loser and a winner um in fact knowing you well you've always been interested in other people's wellness you've, you've never stepped on someone to elevate yourself um it's just been a fight to be part of if i said that right yeah, well, I I think that I I think I think definitely think that that's a a key point because um for wow, well let's back things up to like the year that I was born, 1987. Let's put that back into a bit of context. So um you know I mean if we're looking at this from you know 2021 or 2022 depending um I guess it would be 2021. I don't want to put it as in 2022 anytime mm-hmm. soon. But um you have to remember that. Uh, back in 1987, there was still a lot of uh, institutions that were open. Uh, my mother, when I went to school, she had to 
fight for school integration for me. So like like there was schools for persons with disabilities, but it was about really integrating me into um, a regular classroom and allowing me to be a part of that. And then too, there was also um, like just having um, being able to go living in a small community like Medicine is, and I mean it's gotten, uh, it's um, the accessibility has has grown leaps and bounds. But sometimes too, it's just about at those times being able to step outside your door and like have things that we all take for granted now, like whether it be accessible doors or um, even just having sidewalks. Sidewalk. Yeah. It's like okay, good. Well, what I've got to go five blocks away. To be able to get a spot that has a, 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 a cut point in the sidewalk to let a wheelchair up? Like, come on, people. Yeah, yeah, no, and yeah, so, yeah, and that, that, that sort of fight. So, and, and the thing is, too, with that fight, then I also, too, due to the nature of my disability, and what I am classified as is an incomplete quadriplegic, which means that my cerebral palsy impacts every part of my body. So I need to, it's not, it's kind of a fight, but it's more of a negotiation because I can't go in direct opposition to other people. Here, I'm going to back that up a little bit because um, I tend to talk with my hands. Um, uh, but I also rely on other people as well to get my needs met. So it's it's always been sort of a tenuous negotiation between how much do I cajole and request versus if I tick you off, are you going to assist me? So you always have sort of that... Um, kind of um, idea in the back of your head as a person with a disability, whether you're dealing with an individual one-on-one or whether you're dealing with an organization. Yeah, it means that there's a constant um, measuring of power, Mm -hmm. like a constant position of recognizing that there's potential imbalance in power that maybe even the other party doesn't even realize is there. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, and I mean, here's the thing, too. I mean, um, even when it comes to parents, I mean, like, parents always hold a level of power over children. But, uh, you know, and, and just in terms of the parental role. Mm-hmm. In but, fact, they need to. That's essential. Oh, yeah, yeah. And the use of power is, is really the, the essential picture. And you're, and you're right. There's this innate power. Yeah, yeah, and then the the thing is with me and like what it was, what it's always been so interesting is that um, with my family, because I've always had that level of dependence, they've all, I've, uh, I shouldn't say dependence, of physical need. I just want, I wanted to co- clarify that because I'm able to um, a whole bunch ma- of things you do on your own. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. No, yeah, like no, I. When when I when you're picturing an incomplete quadriplegic, like once I'm up in my chair, I'm mobile, I'm fine. But it's when I'm outside of my chair and in an environment that really isn't suited to me, that's when my true um, the power shifts. Oh, literally, yeah. your chair holds power. I mean, that power is electricity, but that electricity power gives you the mobility that allows that de- um, de- uh, independence. 
So for sure, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, I feel, feel like we're kind of wandering all over the place, but yeah. Um, well, no, but for sure, that totally, totally makes sense. So, so you're you're we're talking about this kind of Im- imbalance in power. You're talking about parenting. You're you're talking about can your life experience and the um, the process of how a lot of other people wouldn't even think about some of the things that are just critical in your life. Something as simple as a sidewalk that allows you to access it. Yeah, which kind of brings me into my favorite quote from the Marvel Universe, which I think I've used this a few... Oh, pardon me. I had a uh, Coke before the uh, recording session mm-hmm. here, so if I uh, accidentally belch a little bit, I apologize. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, hopefully the smell doesn't carry with the uh, soundtrack uh, <laughs> nice. but um yeah um one thing that i uh, like uh, one of my favorite quotes from the marvel universe even though spider-man is one of my favorite characters it's not with great power comes great responsibility it's um one of my favorite scenes um in um is from captain america winter soldier where um, you see Steve and then you see Sam Wilson and they're they're doing laps around the um, around the National Mall around that wonderful um, pool that they have and I mean you'll you'll see Steve he comes up and he, and he laps them over and over again and that kind of uh, becomes an ethos for their or our metaphor for their uh, relationship and at uh, one time in the movie Sam basically says I do the same thing he does just slower which uh, really for me that that sort of encapsulates what, what it means to have um, a physical disability on my level which is we can do a lot of the same things that everyone else can do I mean like there, there will always be certain things that you know that I'll never be able to do I'm not going to be able to tie my own shoes you know um, I don't know put on my own socks but you know like there's a lot of other things that i do it just takes me a lot more time and it's always the planning and it's the will to keep going and to try that that just kind of has formed my character yeah absolutely yeah um so the theme that we were on was this notion of of you know i started out in life fighting for breath and i never stopped fighting it wasn't just you like you said, it was your tribe as well that your parents fought for you, and yeah, right. yeah, and um, you know, and I really, um, they, I mean, I, I won the lottery in terms of my parents. Maybe not so much with the genetics, with the uh, receding hairline, which I'm, you know, then I always get all the Professor X jokes. <laughs> um, but uh, no, like I said, my mother was a nurse. Um, uh, my father was an electrician, so my mother intimately knew care very, very well. Her, her grand, or her, my grandmother, her mother was a nurse, and then my uh, my grandfather had also worked in uh, institutions actually caring for persons with disabilities. So that was well grounded in there. So my mother knew all of the things that were kind of necessary for that. And my father, and this was sort of the division of labor, as it were, when as we grew up, uh, well, my father wasn't well versed in care. He was, uh, well, was an, an electrician and sort of a jack of all trades. So basically anything that was sort of necessary to be built um, like he did it, like he would build standards, walkers, ramps. Um, and because of his technical ingenuity, I was able to go out and do things that maybe a lot of other people weren't with disabilities weren't able to do. Like they, they made sure whenever they were um, 
sort of the ethos of my disability was, and I think that this is something that I've internalized, which is really important, is that they, they didn't look at my disability as a hindrance. Rather, they looked at it, uh, you know, as something to be accommodated, and they didn't see it as me. Like, my mother had always talked about when they were ever mad. They weren't mad. Um, well, unless I did something like all children do, um, like like if there, if there was ever an issue um, with my disability, it wasn't um, they weren't mad at me. They didn't see the disability as me. They were mad at cerebral palsy or CP. Yeah, um, and then I also had a a bro. Well, I have a brother. He's eighteen months older than me, and uh, the most interesting thing is my. He uh, he has ADHD, so it was kind of you know he would get back at me or he would get or I would say something to him verbally and he would get back at me physically and my brother, while he, while I wasn't able to do all of the physical things, my brother sort of brought the light and uh, you know as Jeremy will know like being intimately aware with ADHD brought the energy into the family that kind of kept us all sort of going. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, uh, let me see. So, wait, I, I feel like I'm just talking at nauseum. Oh, for you no, to, that's, that's, uh, that's all good. Yeah. Um, you, that, that position around, uh, you know, and I keep coming back to this, but it really does seem to be that thread, that, uh, that, that fighting for, for, for yourself and fighting for, for that life. Um, and you talk about in school that during that period of time, mainstreaming wasn't necessarily the normal oh yeah yeah no that, that that's a good point actually my uh yeah and my my mother did a lot of advocating actually my mother got a, a very um <laughs> interesting nickname from uh from one of the school principals she was called the barracuda you know i hear this is where, <laughs> where, where we need the needle drop Ooh, barracuda right uh, but that, that was because like it was whether or not like if i was getting bullied but i um because i um, well, i got bullied by teachers my brother got bullied by teachers um or bullied by other students um particularly my grade two t oh well, for me it was my grade two teacher like she would blame things on me in terms of, oh we can't have a piano in the room because Trenton will run into it and with his chair we can't have a Christmas tree and basically she refused to teach me um because of that and then just kind of or grade one teacher not grade two and then by the time that I got to grade two I basically had to be held back because I didn't have the knowledge and I had a wonderful grade two teacher that uh, helped out through there and with with my brother you know having ADHD he had a level of energy and um, that a lot of uh, teachers weren't um, initially able to accommodate. So with him, like, you know, like he was, uh, they, they did various things with him, which are, are his to tell. But so my mother would always kind of have to go in and say, no, you can't do that with my kids or you have to do this or you have to do that. And so from her, actually, we even have news clippings of her actually fighting for school integration, going to meetings of parents of the handicap. And she, even though she was a nurse, she was a great advocate and sort of set my ethos for wanting to be a social worker because she was the one that kind of set all of that in motion. And actually, well, you know, Lee Shured, 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I know Lee Sheward. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So for, for those of you out there, um, Lee is a, an individual that worked with the University of Calgary in their um, bachelor's degree of social work and is, is kind of a, a matriarch for the, the city. There's just almost every student that had been through that program would have had mentorship from her. Yeah. And uh, when actually Lee was starting out her career, because she started out helping out with parents and handicap but yeah and as a young social worker she you know first interacted with my mom and all of those young parents and kind of galvanized that group and kind of pushed them forward in in terms of this social action so so tell me then in terms of your uh, career path so you you complete high school Mm -hmm. and uh and did you know that you wanted to become a social worker like right away no, uh, actually, initially, I wanted to go into psychology, uh, and uh, actually, I, like, and I'd wanted to do that ever since I was a child. Like, I I'd met this young psychologist at the time, uh, Stephen, and he had um, put me on the path, like, you know, because I, I was rather taken with him. And for the longest time, I, even in my aptitude test, like, when it came up with social work, I was like, nah, nah, I don't want to do that. <laughs> yeah, and then, so it started out in psychology, and... I don't know, like, I enjoyed the psychology courses, but, like, as I started taking um, anthropology, religious studies, sociology, I was like, well, I like psychology, but I want a broader base. Um, I want something um, a little bit more unique. And then, actually, I ended up, I don't know if you know Linda Fair. Uh, yeah, very much so. Linda Fair is uh, uh, someone that is connected to the Lethbridge um, campus of university of calgary yeah yeah so work. yeah so with her like literally i was i was in there one day and i was literally paying our like because where their office used to be if you if, if any of you ever go to the uofl campus um i forget what the building is called now but where you go to pay your fees that that used to be where the u of c office was right right by the registrar yeah right by the re- thank you i forgot that word mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. um yeah so i'm going and i'm paying by the registrar and they you know i go in there and then he, here's linda and you know like where she was just i think she was just right outside the doors or something and we ended up having a conversation this was at noon uh, and then uh you know like we ended up talking for like an hour and a half thank goodness i didn't end up having a class and she looks at me she goes you really need to join the social work program she says you're you're so well versed and i I said to her i said well i said i'd love to like you know and afterwards i'm like i'd love to but due to my physical disability and all the care that i have you know i'm like i can't do five classes a semester um you know i i can't um because at the time, like, I've, I'd only ever taken three, maybe four. And she's like, well, you know, we do have a program in Medicine Hat. And, you know, at the time, like, I was like, oh, well, I just left Medicine Hat. Like, like I, I wanted to get out of that town. Yeah. What are you yeah. talking about? I'm not going back yeah, to that town. Yeah. <laughs> and so I was like, okay, well, sure, whatever. Um, and, I mean, my first few years at UofL were a little bit tumultuous just because I was one of the first fully disabled students to live on campus. I, I, have I ever told you this? Go ahead. Oh, no, 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 no. I can, no I'm, I'm honestly asking you, Jeremy. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've, oh. I've, I've heard it before. Okay. But, of course, our audience hasn't. Okay, and yeah, so yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm just as interested in how this narrative is going to right. develop as they yeah. are. Um, okay, so, um, yeah. I feel like people need to be doing notes because I should have 
thought of a whole linear path for this. But at the end of high school, um, my parents were bound and determined for me to go to university, even though I wanted to take a year off. My mother's like, if you take a year off, you're not going anywhere. She's like, you know, you, you need to find somewhere to go. Cal- like, actually going to Calgary, even though that, that for me was a dream for a long time, my mother was, you know, like just very dead set against that. Didn't end up getting initially into the UFC, ended up getting into the UFL. But uh, I had a doctor at the time that was like, he needs to go and live in the university, like in the res. You know, that would be good for you. Like my mom, like just heartbroken, sick. And she's like, no, he needs to go and live in a care facility. This is my baby. He doesn't know how to take care of himself. So here's me, you know, first year university student. I'm the first uh, fully wheelchair bound student that they've had in here. So uh, first off, where they have me um, living is not wheelchair accessible. Now, I don't, I, now let, let me clar- clarify what I mean by that. I mean, it wasn't wheelchair accessible by any means. I, the doorways weren't wide enough. I couldn't use any of the, the I couldn't, because we were living in an apartment, like I couldn't use any of the, um, anything in the kitchen. And worst of all, I couldn't use the shower. So there was no way for me to even bathe. My my new aide at the time had to take me over to the locker rooms to shower me. By the it, by the pool? Yeah. Wow. For for those of you that don't know the University of Lethbridge, it's uh it's built into this kind of uh, bluff or coolie and uh and it from it looks like a just this concrete bunker and and the, the general um uh, residents are actually at the bottom of this bunker. It's like being in a dungeon, and I couldn't, I can't imagine uh, how someone would negotiate that in a wheelchair. So, so you must have been in the apartment buildings that were at the top of the hill. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. I was, at, mm-hmm. I was at Bikani. Um and so yeah, we had to do that until um, until they started construction. And I wasn't in these alone. I, I had, uh, I had a roommate at the time. Um, I'll just use his name because, you know, I, I can't remember his last name. So we'll just try and that, that'll be a confidentiality of time, you know, um, whereas he like we were both young at the time. I was 20. I'd spent an extra year in high school, uh, but he was 19. He was in the music program, Jesse, and he had never interacted with people with disabilities before. He had had people with disabilities in the special class, but he had never actually interacted with them fully like one-on-one so here he is and this is an individual um of caribbean descent so he's first generation uh for him it was like okay i'm going into the music program i'm going into um teaching program so he was doing a double major Mm -hmm. Uh, faculty of education yeah Mm -hmm. faculty faculty of education and here he is living with this uh disabled guy they're uh, ripping apart the apartment he's got caregivers coming out left right and like you know coming in twice a day once in the morning once in the evening and i mean now as you look around my apartment i mean it, it you know um it's a regular apartment i mean it's relatively clean it should be for a guy you know 
34 years old. But at the time, I didn't know how to manage my apartment. I didn't know how to manage my caregivers. It's one thing to learn how to do your own laundry. It's another thing to tell somebody how to do it and like all of the little details. So, I mean, poor Jesse. And I, we, I found out the preceding year that at the time, too, he was also struggling with his sexuality, too, as well. Um, so yeah, like so, he and I uh, at many points ended up coming to loggerheads. Wow, that must have been not a comfortable experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because we uh, we we were we were fighting, um, and uh, like there there was an issue with the bathroom, and he he had left a note for my caregivers in three colors: blue, red, and black ink about how, like, a notes all over the bathroom about how he wanted them to clean. And he basically treated them, oh, it, oh it's like, oh, well, I have to deal with this disabled guy, but, you know, the staff will, will clean up after me, too. They're my servants. Yes, they're <laughs> my, yeah, thank you, they're my servants. So, wow. uh, yeah, so here's me, first-year student, you know, I'm like, struggling with classes, trying to keep up with that, dealing with bad roommate. And then too, and then I've got my caregivers coming to me and going, we're not cleaning up his crap. You know, like, well, we're there for it's, you. It's funny you say that because it is the bathroom. We'll clean up after you. We'll, we'll do dishes. We'll do whatever you say, but we're not like, you know, we're not fluffing and folding his pillows. It's, exactly. They're not his servants. Yeah. So, yeah. And, and like that, that the first. And something of, tells me that these were women that were coming into the residence uh, as, as caregivers. A lot of them were young women. Mm-hmm. There, there, there were there, there, there was. Uh, I had a few male caregivers. I had mm-hmm. one a male caregiver in uh, particular. I'm, I can't remember his name at the moment, but there was one time um, when uh, Jesse went on vacation. He went back to go and see his parents, and he loved listening to um, classical and Christian uh, gospel music first thing in the morning, like to get himself up. And he had actually a playlist, like, and it and it would start off with Michael Bublé's, um, oh, um, like Good Day or whatever it is, like you know, dun, 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 mm-hmm. and then like eventually he would get up to that. He left it on. When he left, and he locked his door, so the playlist kept playing for two days straight. And my one male caregiver was like, "If you know, he's like, I want to go in, I want to kick down that door, and I rip <laughs> out every single one of those wires." So yeah, suffice it to say that those first, uh, that first year wasn't good. I ended up living. At the Oval after that uh, for another two years, but I ended up living on my own. In fact, Jesse uh, actually ended up moving out halfway through the year because, oh, I can't take this anymore. And then I found out later that, you know, he missed my company. Hmm. Yeah, so so then uh, then I ended up coming back here, ended up moving into this apartment and going into the, uh, the social work program for the bachelor's degree. And that was... Uh, that, that 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 was an interesting program. It was a good program, but um, a vast majority of the students um, were people that had already done their diploma in social work, and a lot of the learning circles program was initially actually set up for that. So w- with a lot of those individuals, they had 
the grounding in it. And you only had, I think, myself and one other person that ended up quitting the program that was a university transfer student because that, those, those were two ways to get into there. So the the instructor, well, well, the instructor would help me. The majority of the class was sort of geared towards people that already had those fundamentals. So for me, like when I went into the program, I ended up um, having like, you know, again, sort of that analogy was kind of coming up where it's like, you know, I do the same thing they do. It just takes me twice as long because I was ending up having to do more study work to kind of get to where they were. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, also this position around an emphasis around difference Mm -hmm. Um, that, that, you know, all of these other people have this shared journey and I don't. Mm -hmm. It's curious because in, in the undergraduate program I went through, then there was like two people with a diploma and everybody else's university transfer. And oh, wow. so, you know, it's, it's just, is interesting, but yeah, mm. a bit of a flip flop there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I ended up getting my, um, getting my bachelor's degree and, uh, you know, one uh, of the things I'm really curious about actually. Okay. And, uh, and, and because this is a, a little bit of a commentary, um, uh, a look behind the curtain of our own profession. And that is to say, um, we're, Social workers are intended, one of our foundations is to create uh, a just society, a society for all. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and so I'm, I'm interested in, in knowing, like, what were some of the barriers that you had to deal with within this system that is training people to be, you know, those um, social justice advocates? Uh, one thing I'll say, um, you know, like the professors were very accommodating. The, the schoolwork came very natural to me. I mean, you know, like I, like I, I was like a duck to water. Like I went from being like a, you know, uh, B minus, maybe, you know, A minus student to getting A's and A pluses. I'm like, okay, perfect program. All right. Mm-hmm. The one thing that kind of came to me was when, and I mean, I ran into the struggle too. Um, with my um, master's degree, it was when you go and you do the practicum, because having me in the classroom, everything was, you know, it's a, it's a controlled environment. Everything was set up. But when you take me out um, and do a practicum with me, um, it was very, very limiting, because uh, in, in a way, because with a lot of those um jobs that you can do at the bachelor's level and where a lot of people start out you end up doing a lot of um frontline work now for those of you that you know don't know what frontline work is a lot of that usually entails taking people out into the community and kind of getting that foundational experience and with my practicums even though um you know my practicum supervisors were wonderful they tried to give me the experiences that they could uh, that was something that I was always sort of lacking, not not because I didn't have the will to or the desire, but it was just all of sort of the physical barriers that kind of come up with that. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah, does it, is that is that kind of exploring what you were thinking about? Or yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Like like that that position is around. Um, do we do we practice what we preach? You know. Um, there, there's, there's these innate barriers that are actually um, a part of even 
our social work culture and community too. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, I think um, just one second. Um, I think that I didn't experience any um, any overt or covert um, ableism. Uh, in the program at all, I think that many people were quite accepting. Um, I think that overall, like I've I found for myself one thing, and I mean maybe it's because I I took this on very naturally, but I always felt like you know that I was speaking towards my experience as a person with a disability. Maybe that's because I, of course I was the only person in the program. So I don't, I don't know if that would be considered a barrier to the program, or uh, I always felt like it was kind of welcome. Yeah, no, the interesting thing there is, how come there aren't others? You know, doesn't that represent something? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, so. well, yeah. And and uh, when I actually went for my um, my graduation, there was one other person with cerebral palsy that did graduate from the social work program, but she had done it via Edmonton. Mm. Um, but I think that, that that is something to be said is um, there are limited numbers of persons with disabilities that do end up getting degrees and kind of moving forward into um, sort of the work world because of all of the barriers that can kind of come with that. Um, and I, I think like I, I was talking with a friend and and. Uh, Last night, and she has uh, a disability. She has spina bifida. But we all we talk about sort of the last two hurdles as people with physical disabilities to jump. One is dating, and the other one is working. Everything else, there, there's a smooth track. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I think now. So I'm I'm curious as well. Then, of course, you didn't end at the bachelor level. Well, what did the what did the journey look like from there? Uh, yeah, um so from there, um yeah, like after after university, like after my bachelor's level, um things uh yeah, that that was a weird period, man. Um cuz you know, school I, I think for a lot of us like for a lot of people like when you're in university, it's kind of that safe womb, you know, and it's like, "Oh, I'm just going to like take school and school will go on forever." And that's like, "Oh, wait." It's, and you know, it's like, "Hang on. You know, wait. I just reached the end of a new hope." You know, like, I mean, literally, like, for me, like, th- that's what was going through my mind. Like, you know, as... as I blew up the Death Star. Yeah, I blew Yay. up... Yay! I blew up the Death Star. Well, no, I yeah, mean, I, now what? Yeah, no. <laughs> well, no, well, uh, well, I blew up the Death Star, but, like, like, when I got my diploma, all I could think of was that scene, like, you know, where Princess Leia <laughs> give, there... <laughs> gives everybody a medal but Chewie. Yeah. Was there music playing for you at the time? Um... <laughs> No, no music. <laughs> no, no, no music. Uh, but uh, yeah, but then it was like, okay, well, it's like, okay, what do you do after that? And then it was like, oh, gotta get a job. Oh crap! What does that mean? And, you know, and, you know, I know a lot of people. Oh yeah, university student, gotta get a job. Okay, but then it's like, okay, well, what does that mean? Well, what can you do with a bachelor's degree in um, social work? I was gonna say sociology there for a second, which second love um mm-hmm. but yeah bachelor's degree in social work okay um no experience hmm okay well first thing okay you got to get registered okay got my registration all right now go job hunting hmm 
I'm going down the list. Every single one for um, bachelor's degree. It's like, oh, and like minimal experience. It's like, okay, class five driver's license. Need to work out in community. Nope. You know, okay, office job. It's like, okay, five years experience. Nope. So this is where some barriers started to come into play. I mean, some barriers that would be common... But some barriers that were also specific. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh, oh, yeah. And, and actually, um, at the time, I, I had connected with a friend of mine, uh, Mark, who uh, he had done his diploma in social work. I, um, or, uh, and he was a social worker out in, um, in BC, actually, I think on Vancouver Island. He had just moved back to uh, Medicine Hat because he had gotten a job here and then he ended up losing it. And uh, he had become legally blind and he was running into the same issue. He's like, you know what? A great guy, and I should introduce you to him one day because I mean, like, he can cook too. He's amazing. You should introduce him to me then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Again. I'm always up for food. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you know, like, he was running into the same issue. He's like, I don't got a license anymore, man. What do I do? And then I was like, well, the only other thing I could think of is, all right, well, look at what the, um, what are the other things that I could do? Well, okay, if I can't work at the bachelor's level, may as well go back and uh, go up one more degree. So I contacted the UFC and contacted Linda, and she's like, yeah, no, you could definitely do it. She said, you need to get some volunteer hours. You know, and I, 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 did, I, I will admit, I did work a little bit. I, uh, I ended up working at uh, Core Association, um, which is an, an association here in Medicine Hat that mostly helps persons with developmental disabilities. And I also did end up working um, back at um, the Medicine Hat Youth Action Society, uh, which, which has now changed its name. The, the new name escapes me at the moment, but that, that was where I did my first practicum. So I did have a little bit of experience, but um, needed a little bit more before I got back. So I went and I did a lot of committee work, um, uh, mostly focusing on persons with disabilities. Kind of bided my time for two years, took some extra courses, and then ended up going back and doing my master's degree, thankfully, um, through the U of C online um, doing uh, some courses in Lethbridge um, and then also to some courses, um, you know, just here um, basically uh, in medicine at, at home here or via Zoom. But then again, too, I also ran into, again, n- more issues kind of with um, having uh, the practicum. And a lot of that came down to the fact that, I mean, I again, I did well in the courses, but um, when you go out and you're you're doing things at a master's level and you get the practicum, they kind of expect you to have a little bit more experience and know-how than basically, you know, fresh-faced social worker. Now it's interesting you say that because uh, to a certain degree, that is uh, that that's true. It's just Trent. I went back to back. I I, I finished in uh, you know April and I started. A master's degree in September. The only thing I had under my belt was uh, the practicums, and then some work once again in in uh, with persons with uh, developmental disabilities. That's all I had, and um and and so some of the things just as as we've known each other, um it to me it felt like an excuse. Um, and uh, it, it felt like like someone was saying, "Hey, we we gotta we gotta say something here," 
um, that is going to not be about your disability that ends this practicum. And, and, and that, like, I really saw as oppressive. Maybe. I, well, okay. Well, let me add a little bit more context to the discussion about practicum, because I think that, um, uh, and I think, you, well, I, th- I think you're right that there, there may have been something going on there, but I also think because you did your practicum through, uh, like, directly at the U of C campus, is that correct? No. No, the Calgary Counseling Center. Oh, but no, but, but but you did that all within Calgary, is what I mean, right? Oh yeah, that that's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no. But that, the the uh, the placement and the school are not connected. Uh oh. So okay. Just like any other placement, it's just a place where there's um, a faculty uh, liaison, you know, someone that is willing to supervise you, just like any other placement. Yeah. Um. Well. So some of the people in my class were at different hospitals in the city and different other uh, places with Alberta Health Services and so forth. Well, like at the time, it would have been the Calgary Health Region. But. Did you have to find that practicum, though? Yeah. Oh, you, oh, oh, okay, sorry. Um, yeah, so I was always under the impression that you, or that you were kind of assigned yeah. one. No, so I had to go and, uh, and say, hey, I see that, you know, uh, that you're on the list of possible, and interview with them, and... Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and then they decided if they wanted to have me there or not. Okay, okay, wow, okay. So you and I did have a because that I think that was for me one of the the issues was to go out and find a practicum. Like I, 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 I mean, a lot of people were very nice. They were very, very, like nobody was overtly. Um, you know, they didn't say no, like, you know, like in terms of like, we don't, well, I mean, a lot of them said no, well, no. And then it was, I had to go back to the university basically saying, look, I can't find a practicum. And one person on there was, you know, one person at the the faculty was very nice and like, you know, helped me find one at the college, but they basically wanted me to work independently. And I would go there and I would like want more instruction in different things and like kind of more guidance and i mean i mean i know you you provide me quite a bit of guidance because you know as we've worked together in various things but at that moment it was kind of like they were like um, that ended um and then you know like their their whole thing was you you just need more experience working with people I'm like, why do you think i'm in a practicum that's the thing right (laughs) that's the point yeah the point is when you uh when somebody accepts to be that mentor that's what they're supposed to do is mm-hmm. be that mentor. Yeah. Um, and then I ended up getting another practicum and that one was challenging just because um, the person at the time, um, and I, I'm, I'm purposely being vague just because, you know, I don't, I, these are my own personal experiences. Sure, I don't, don't want to throw anyone under the bus. Yeah. Yeah. And that person basically gave me um, like, one or two weeks of it, like, or would show me to do something like maybe once or twice, uh, like, or to do an intake of that required like 50 questions or 50 specific things that you, you go through with people. And she, w- she would then say, okay, go do that. And I, I remember I went to her specifically and I was like, Hey, can I take one of these home or can I have like a blank one that I can kind of go through and just kind of memorize and kind of work my own way through? Nope. No, you have to do it all with clients in the moment. And I mean, like, if you think about asking, like, 
uh, 50 specific questions that can lead to different things. You kind of need, um, you need to get your own rhythm down. And she was, she very much wanted it, like, or I felt at the time very much wanted it perfect right off the bat. For sure. In fact, if it's, uh, if it's cool, I want to flip this on, the, on its head a little bit. Sure. And that is to say, um, we, we talked about this fight that you had since the time you were born. Mm-hmm. Except that nobody gets through this life alone. And you, and you talked a little bit about some key people that were a part of that. You talked about your mom. You talked about some other people. You talked about Linda, which is, is very interesting because Linda was willing to drive from Lethbridge to Calgary for my defense. Wow. Right? And, and one of these other things that is this connecting piece, mm-hmm. right, um, uh, between you and I. So um, what I'm wondering is, there, are there others that were part of your success? Oh, oh, yeah. Um, no, there, there were several others. There was, um, well, I mean, you're, you're part of my story. I mean, you, you've been there for me in, in various capacities. Uh, I had... Um, Okay, gosh, uh, this could be end up being a five-hour podcast if I had violence had to go through. Um, so let me see, like going way back. I mean, of course, I have my my parents, my brother. Um, I had a lot of school aides. One of my first school aides, Lisa um, Carlos, who um, she uh, she actually trained as an Olympic figure skater. Um, and she was uh, my first school aide. She actually was with me from. Um, Kindergarten, well, from, yeah, from kindergarten all the way up till, you know, you're getting old, man. Um, <laughs> I think grade three, and, like, she would encourage me to do my own work. Um, then I had another school aide, which was not beneficial, because um, she kind of treated, she had a lot, like, she kind of trained me to be very dependent. And then I had my one, my final school aide for my, um, Traditional education, like um, elementary school to high school, uh, Brenda Iwasik, or as I called her, the boss. Um, and she she was a wonderful woman that kind of helped me out when I was at a moment of dependence. Now, when I mean a moment of dependence, this lady that I had, had previously had uh, basically... Um, trained me to basically not do anything on my own. So like if there was if there was a pencil, like let's say right here where my phone is sitting, which I just tapped on, uh, I would, you know, I would look at you, for example, and say, can you hand me that pencil rather than literally just going and picking it up myself? Um, uh, Brenda wouldn't have any of that. And she basically had to take me right back to zero and basically teach me to be more independent with myself and she took me from the learning assistance program in uh, junior high um, in grade seven all the way to the honor roll by the end of grade nine and that woman was a true force of nature you know i and i see the smile on your face yeah Yeah. and uh and i i see this this person oh yeah made such a tremendous difference in your life and uh and 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 it's that Mm -hmm. what what was it that brought about such a tremendous change? It's not just somebody who has expectations. It's expectations and love. Oh, oh yeah. No, what she, what she did, and I mean, um, and if I, if I can do like a, get, get a, a little bit up on my political soapbox here, um, because she was a one-on-one aide. 
So she had the time to build the relationship with me. Um, and she she saw my limitations, but she did like very much with, like my mother um, at the time. She saw uh, she saw my limitations not as wholly as who I was, mm-hmm. but rather something that needed to be accommodated. And she saw something in me that could be pushed. And I think that that's something with people with disabilities that people are afraid to do. It's it's fine to push people to. Um, it's it's almost like to emerge from. Um, uh, a pupa emerging from a chrysalis, um, like you, like you have to have resistance in order to grow, and a good enough resistance, and to recognize that independence can be for anyone um, can be a wide variety of things. What it means for me to be independent is completely different for you, or completely different with somebody with a developmental challenge. But no matter what it is, we all need that level of agency in our lives. That's what gives it meaning. Mm-hmm. Agency and connection, which are interesting because it's kind of, uh, if I could use a metaphor, it's kind of like someone that is climbing a rock face mm. and there's no handhold. There's, there's nowhere they could get uh, their fingers to hook in. There's only one way to be able to do it. And that is with opposing force. Yeah, I got to shove my hands in opposite directions against this to move myself up. And those opposite opposing positions would, would be that, that one being agency and the other connection. For a second there, I thought you were going to talk about the logo of my private practice. Mm. Oh yeah. Yeah. Someone pulling someone up. Yeah. 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 Well, and, and, you know, and so, yeah, and that, that, that sort of relationship with, uh, with Brenda, um, you know, and with a lot of the other people in my life, because I've had, I've had a lot of people that have been helpful and a lot of people that have been hurtful. And the ones that I've noticed that have become into my life that have been the most helpful have been the ones that, uh, again, foster that agency in people. And uh, as you say, like have that connection because, um, the one thing that I've noticed being a person with a disability and, and being so dependent on other people is that you you need that, that desire. You, you so greatly need your community, and in some ways, too. But at the same time, too, you also have to be prepared for the loss of those connections or the change of them. And you need to be not only something that is, is a position of I need the community, but the community needs me. Exactly. Yeah. Like. Yeah. Like. We all. We all need a sense of of worth. Like. Um. It, it brings me back to the idea of anomie of purposelessness. Um. You know, anomie is a French term. Um. And it's it's used in sociology. And it's basically the idea of well, especially you'll find this too. Um. With um the elderly as they age, especially within Western society, is that they lose their sense of identity and what their sense of identity is. I mean, you'll find this more. It's more apparent with men than it is with women because women have a multiple um roles and statuses that are enshrined within culture. Um, but with men, particularly when a man loses a, you know, like when he transitions out of um, work, he sort of loses that identity. Where worth, identity. yeah, worth. What am what and and what is my worth now? Yeah. If I, if I don't contribute, what am I worth? Yeah, yeah, yeah. and exactly, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah. So, um, I, I just kind of want to pull 
pull things together. Um, we, I think, have got this glimpse into your life, Trent, about you know, what has developed this this person that sits in in front of me. And um, and, and, and I'm wondering if you you have kind of some concluding comments, some things that that pull things together. Um. Well, one thing I'll say is, um, you know, I I think that what this was was a cross section. I mean, I could probably sit here and talk for hours. But one thing that I think that I've noticed um a lot about my life is that um the need for patience, patience with myself, patience with other people, um, and also not cutting yourself off from others and seeing finding people in your life or or fostering relationships in your life that um that you can bring value to and that bring value to you and that that is most important and that even though a person may have a primary status of a disability or um you know or being a person of color or maybe a certain sexual or a gender identity that 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 may be a chapter in their lives, but that is one chapter, and to really understand them, it's about going beyond that primary status and and looking at how all of those other things interconnect to make them who they are, and that people are constantly becoming who they are. That we're not just one thing; that we will constantly always change and grow if we so choose. Thank you for that message, Trent. That is fantastic. So once again, uh, to our listeners, thank you for joining us for this episode of Humanizing Mental Health. This is Jeremy Alcorn. This is Trent Nakers. Signing off. See you. This podcast is intended as general information. We are glad that you joined us today. We hope this message has been as meaningful to you as it has been to us. If you're looking for help, you can find us on Facebook at Humanizing Mental Health or at humanizingmentalhealth.ca. Humanizing Mental Health is a plugged-in media production.